Our scripture reading for today comes from Genesis chapter 11, verse 26 to chapter 12, verse 9. Listen now to the word of the Lord. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the son of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. Thank you. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this day that you have made and the opportunity we have to gather and to worship. We ask, as always, that in the hearing of your word, you would speak your word to us. And so hearing, help us to be strengthened and to obey. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. Um, so for those of you who were not here last Sunday, I just want to uh, alert you that I will be preaching um, through something known as the Narrative Lectionary uh, from now until uh, May of next year. The Narrative Lectionary uh, will lead us through many of the major uh, events and passages in the scriptures. Uh, and then beginning with around Christmas time, we'll hear the story of Jesus as told through the Gospel of Matthew. And then we'll finish up with the letters uh, in the New Testament. So over the, the course of the year, uh, I'm hoping that we'll get a kind of um, an aerial view of the whole story of redemption uh, from creation all the way to the new creation. So last week, I mentioned um, that 10% of the book of Genesis is devoted to the story of Noah. 
Um, I can tell you today that about 25% of the book of Genesis is devoted to the story of Abraham. In addition, the New Testament, uh, we find another 75 or so additional references to Abraham. In other words, he's a pretty important character uh, in the scriptures. For example, we find in Romans 4, the Apostle Paul's that Abraham is the primary example of someone who has been justified by faith apart from works. While in James 2, Abraham is described as a man who demonstrated his faith through his works. In Hebrews 11, Abraham headlines the Hall of Faith. In Galatians 3, the Apostle Paul's that Christians are the children of Abraham by faith and therefore rightful heirs to the blessings that had been promised to him by God. And Jesus himself mentions Abraham on multiple occasions, once using him as a character in a parable he tells, and then another time in making the radical claim of his divinity by saying, before Abraham was, I am, that he preexisted prior to Abraham. So Abraham just looms very, very large in our faith and our reading today is how he is first introduced to us. And at this point, he is called Abram, meaning exalted or noble father, um, but he will soon have his name changed by God to Abraham, by which we know him. Uh, and Abraham means the father of many, as the blessings will, will play out in his life. So I'm gonna call him Abraham, even though it's Abram in the, in the text today. So the call of Abraham in Genesis 12, this chapter that we just heard, is considered by pretty much every biblical scholar to be not only the, the, the linchpin of the book of Genesis and the Old Testament, but really of the entire Bible. Like this is like the, the critical chapter for all of our understanding about the scriptures and about God's plan of redemption. After the flood, God made a covenant with Noah's family and all of creation that he would not destroy it. But now with Abraham, he goes further. God makes a covenant, not simply to not destroy, but to bless all the families of the earth through this family, a promise that will ultimately be fulfilled through his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we can see the importance of this call, for example, in the book of Acts. In chapter 7, Stephen, one of the first seven deacons of the church in Jerusalem, has been accused of blasphemy and is brought before the council to explain himself. And in making his defense, he begins by retelling the story of God's redemptive story. And he begins with the call of Abraham. Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Now, if you were paying attention, you might have noticed that Stephen seems to have misread our reading today from Genesis 12. At the end of Genesis 11 in, in our reading today, the family had already left Ur, or Mesopotamia, the land of the Chaldeans, and they had settled in Haran. 
And that's where God seems to have called Abraham according to our reading this morning. But Stephen says God spoke to Abraham in Mesopotamia before he moved or lived in Haran. Now it could be that Stephen misread the Bible and misinterpreted it. He would not be the first to make a mistake. Certainly I know I've made my share of mistakes in interpreting the scriptures. However, I think in this case, he did not make a mistake. Now, if you have your Bibles and you want to kind of look at it, there should be a footnote. I know you probably don't pay attention to these footnotes. But in verse 1, chapter 12, there should be a footnote. And the footnote, if you look at the bottom, should say that instead of, now the Lord said to Abram, that it could be translated, now the Lord had said to Abram. That this was a call that God had said earlier, not in Haran, where they are now, where the story is taking place, but had said, presumably, while they were still in Ur of the Chaldeans in Mesopotamia. That's how Stephen reads it. The Lord had said. In other words, the Lord called Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. But only now, in Haran, does Abraham respond. Now this might be like, what's the, what's, who cares? Like such a meaningless detail, right? But I think it's important. Because I think it means that Abraham did not leave Ur, did not leave initially because God told him to leave. He only listened to God's word later after he found himself in Haran. He did not, of his own initiative, go to the land of Canaan as he had been instructed. He moved with his family and he just happened to end up in Haran because his dad and his family were planning to go toward Canaan and I think he just went along with his family because that's what his family was doing. I don't think he was actively pursuing or seeking to respond to God's call. But once they got to Haran and they settled there, instead of moving on to Canaan, that's the point where Abraham has to decide, what am I going to do? Am I going to follow God's call or am I going to just settle here in Haran? That's the decision that he makes. That's the question that he has. Is he going to choose to follow God at this moment in his life? Now, the way the story gets told in Genesis, it seems like Abraham waited until his father, Terah, died before leaving Haran in response to God's call. Right? The 11th chapter ends with, and Terah died. And then we hear about the call. But again, if we look at the text a little more carefully, we see that is not what seems to have happened. Consider this timeline. Chapter 11, verse 26 says that Terah fathered Abraham and two other sons when he was 70 years old. Okay, so presumably Abraham was the firstborn and he was born when Terah was 70. At some point after that, at least a couple of decades because Abraham and the others are married, they leave Ur of the Chaldeans and they head toward Canaan and they stop along the way in a place called Haran. 
Chapter 11, verse 32 says that Terah died in Haran when he was 205. He died when he was 205. Now, chapter 12, verse 4, it says that Abraham was 75 years old when he left Haran. I know that's a lot of stuff, a lot of numbers. So let me do a little quick math here. If Terah had Abraham when he was 70, and Abraham left Haran when he was 75, it means that Terah was 145 years old when Abraham left him. In other words, Abraham left his 145-year-old father in Haran. He left him alone for 60 years. So Abraham was not sitting around in Haran with his family until his dad had died and his family responsibilities were taken care of, and now it's a convenient time for me to obey God, and now I'm going to go. He heard the call. He kind of maybe just, well, you know, my family's going that way anyway, so I'll kind of tag along. They get to Haran. He recalls the call, and now he's faced with the decision. My family's not going to keep going. God wants me to go. What am I going to do? His dad's 145 years old. He doesn't know how long he's going to live. But he's going to live another 60 years. He doesn't know that at this point, right? But he makes the decision to leave, leaving his father alone, his 145-year-old father. It could not have been an easy decision for Abraham, and it could not have been an easy thing for his father, Terah, to hear. Can you imagine... Put yourself in Terah's shoes. One of your kids tells you, hey, dad, mom, I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave home. Okay, where are you going? I don't know. Somewhere over there. Why? God told me. How many of you would be comfortable with that? It could not have been easy for Abraham. I mean, it's one thing to follow God and after you know you've sort of settled things down for your family after burying your father having no more ties or fewer ties but he left him and some would say abandoned him in a time when he may have needed his help you know i can remember uh over the years people telling me that they would get more involved in the life of the church that they would take their faith more seriously after after their kids were a little bit more grown up or after you know their job situation and their career took off and then you hear like after you know we get through the season of lacrosse and baseball and uh, hockey or whatever or after you know my kids go off to college you know or after my kids move out of the house and get married you know after i take care of my parents like there's always an after you know abraham could have said after too but he didn't. He didn't. And so I think, like Abraham, that's the choice we, I think, always have in responding to God's call, whether we're going to settle down where we are in Haran and wait for some after when we think there will be some magical time when we'll have more free time or you know, we'll have more opportunities or somehow our faith will magically become more important to us so now I'm really going to you know, get involved. Or we can choose today to follow God where he calls us as he has ever called us in years past 
I know that like me, many of you are probably struggling with how best to care uh, for your aging parents who may be living alone. And I know it is not easy or comfortable leaving them alone. And so we have to imagine for Abraham, it was not easy either. It's not like he could get on a bus and go visit his dad, you know, on the next train. As far as we know, this is the last time he will see his father. It's easy to leave. I mean, it's, it's difficult and not easy to leave your family. Um, I've been thinking this week that, you know, um, probably at least some of you, if not many of you, um, came here as immigrants or your parents did. My family came here uh, in 1972 when I was eight years old. Over the years, I've asked my father, you know, why did we come to this country and why didn't we just stay in Korea? And he never had a good answer for me. He never had a clear, like, this is why we came. God called me, you know, or, um, you know, he would offer a number of different uh, reasons. And I don't think he's entirely clear. Um, he had many reasons. Among them, of course, was he wanted to provide better opportunities uh, for his family, not only in Korea, but for his, uh, for his children with education and so on. But as the firstborn of his family, of his generation, um, leaving his widowed mother, four younger siblings, could not have been easy for him, even if it was with the intent to better everyone's lives. I know that in subsequent visits to Korea, my father's younger brothers have told me that my dad leaving Korea made life for them very difficult. And my mother used to tell the story of how when we boarded the, when we were about to board the train uh, to go to Seoul to, to get on the plane, how uh, my dad's mom threw rocks at us. Um, just the, the, the anguish of her son, her firstborn, leaving and leaving her alone. Uh, I don't have that memory, but that's the story that I'm, I'm told. For some of you, I know it's been difficult because you come from non-Christian families where you didn't grow up with faith and you had the sorrow of leaving your family behind in that way uh, to, just to follow Jesus or to go to church. I know some of you continue to carry that, that, that sorrow, that burden of your family not knowing Christ and not having the kind of hope in the resurrection that you have. It is not easy to leave our families but I hope you can take some encouragement in the story of Abraham. And he too grew up in a family that did not follow God. Joshua 24, we read, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. They served other gods. So it's a huge step for Abraham not only to leave his family but his family's gods, his family's way of life. It's never easy to leave, even under the best of circumstances, even when your family blesses you. And so for Abraham, this, this leaving must have been quite a traumatic event. I mean, think about in your own lives when you had to leave, even temporarily. Remember the first time that you had to drop off your screaming toddlers at daycare? Remember what that was like? Or the first time your child was going to ride the school bus 
by themselves and for kindergarten and, and you had to wave them off, you know, by as they got on the bus. Or the first time you drove your child, your young adult, to college and left them in their dorms. Maybe the last time you visited with your parents and had to say goodbye. You know that at weddings, for example, you know, they're um, typically the father of the bride gets to um, bring his daughter down the aisle and to say goodbye. Um, over the years, I've, I've watched a lot of fathers do this. And most of the time, as they're coming down, the brides are smiling and beaming with overflowing joy, right? They're, they're just, they see their husband-to-be, they think he's going to be great, and they're just, just <laughs> beaming with the anticipated joy of their life ahead, right? But if you look at the fathers, not so much. I know it has something to do with cultural expectations about how men, Asian men in particular, are supposed to behave, but I think there's more than that. Because at the end of that walk, he's going to hand off symbolically, but more than symbolically, his daughter to this man. And sometimes you can see the brides as they're coming down, holding back tears, right? Because they too sense that there is something, not just the joy of this new life about to begin, but there is a sense of leaving something behind of a family particularly in traditional weddings or, you know, in the past where, you know, the, the brides would literally leave their families to join their husband's family. It's hard to leave. There is a kind of sorrow when we leave, regardless of the greatness of the adventure that may lie ahead. Now, God's very clear and specific about what Abraham has to leave behind his land, his family, his father's house, and so on. But God does not tell him precisely what's ahead. And I think that's the nature of the call. We are not given all the details of what's ahead, only the command to follow and a general picture of what God intends. Jesus said, come, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. And that's a pretty vague notion, right? I mean, they know what they have to leave behind. Their family, their fishing boats, their careers. And they're going to become fishers of men. What, what does that mean exactly? Follow me and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. How's that going to happen? What does that mean? Where is that going to happen? When you start any new venture, whether you start college, or you got married, or you had kids, you had some notion about where that story was going to take you. But most of you are probably surprised, or have been surprised, by where that journey has taken you and where you ended up. I know I had a pretty good idea of what I was leaving behind when I decided to follow Jesus, and later when I felt the call to enter into ministry. I had some vague notions about what it was going to be like to be a minister or where I'm going to go. I had some ambitions and thoughts about where that might lead me. But I had no idea that the journey would lead me permanently to New Jersey for three decades of my life. That's the majority of my life now. 
We should not imagine that it was easy for Abraham just because he became later the father of faith. At this point, he's just responding to the call like any of us might. Go to the land which I will show you. I mean, I, I just think this is such an incredibly difficult thing to do. And maybe you can only do it at the beginning of your faith. Go to the land I will show you. Today, none of us even leaves the house without a GPS, even to places that we are familiar with. This story always reminds me uh, of my honeymoon. Um, I think I've shared with you before that um, when my wife and I got married, she made this huge mistake um, of entrusting me uh, to make plans for our honeymoon um, because she didn't know me very well. She thought I was a planner. <laughs> so you know what I did? I bought two tickets to Geneva. I bought two U-Rail passes. That's it. <laughs> I didn't book any hotels. I had no idea what we were going to do once we got there. Um, yeah, we just arrived and uh, we got off the plane. I said, let's take this train, let's go there. And that's how we spent the next two weeks. And um, yeah, I just wanted, I thought we'd just explore and have fun. <laughs> With the exception of one day when she was so mad at me, she didn't talk to me for the whole day. We had a pretty good time. We had a good time. I think she'll tell you she had a mostly good time. You know, that's the joy of being young and trusting your spouse that you don't know well. That can only happen at the beginning of the journey. <laughs> she will never let me plan again. She will never do that again. But in the beginning when God says go, because you don't know any better, maybe you just say okay, and maybe that's what enabled Abraham to just go. The writer of Hebrews says, Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. He didn't know where, only that God had called him to go. And he eventually ended up in a land that was perhaps a thousand miles away from his starting point. But did you notice here that when he finally gets to his initial destination where God says go and he ends up in Canaan, he does not stop. He does not settle down. He passed through Shechem to the oak of Moreh, then moved to the hill country, then to the east of Bethel, and then from there he went toward the Negev. And then if you read on the next verse, it says he has to go down to Egypt because there's a famine in the land. He came to Canaan because God called him, and at each place he stopped, he built an altar, he worshiped, but he also kept moving, even down to Egypt when the famine struck. I think likewise, when we choose to follow Christ, he will lead us to places that we are not expecting. God may call you to distant lands, or God may call you to New Jersey. God may call you to handle extraordinary success and riches, or God may call you to carry painful disappointments and hurts and everything in between. Hopefully, God does not call you to that place which shall not be named. But even if he does, even without the blessings of your pastor, 
If God calls you, you have to go. Right now, as far as I can tell, unless you are in some active disobedience to God, God has called you to be here, to be in this church. That means you have to worship in this church. You have to serve in this place. That is your call. That is your call. And in the future, wherever you go, wherever God leads you, or wherever you are forced to go because of famine, or a job, or school, or marriage, or whatever it may be, you can build an altar and worship. You don't know where you might go next, but that is not an excuse. That is not an excuse to delay involvement and commitment to worship. Wherever you are, temporarily, for however long that may be, you can build an altar and worship. Don't delay, don't put off responding to God. You know, I was um, looking through my notes, and as far as I can tell, the last time I preached on this text, this most important text in the Bible was 20 years ago. That's right, that's a bad decision on my part not to have preached on this more often. But 20 years ago, in my sermon, I said this, or at least this is what I wrote down. Almost everything I have to say is borrowed, read, or heard. How could it be otherwise? But I hope as I continue the journey that when I'm 60 or 70, if God lets me go that long, then I hope to have something original and significant to share. And I hope we're all around together to find out what that is. I wrote that when I was 37 years old. I thought my journey would take me to a place where when I turned 60, I would have something original and significant to say. I'm 57 now. I have three years left to come up with something <laughs> original or significant. I wouldn't hold your breath. I am not confident that's going to happen, and you probably aren't either. But God willing, God willing, maybe I'll have something to say when I turn 70 if I remain faithful and teachable. Let me close with this. When God called Abraham, he made a number of promises to him. God promised to make him a great nation and to bless him and to make his name great. And a little later, he promised to give this land to his offspring, to his descendants. These are all great promises, of course, especially considering at this point in Abraham's life when he has no land, he has no reputation, he has no children. He has no prospect of any of those things. And in fact, even after he has a child uh, with his wife Sarah, he doesn't get to see these other promises reach any of their fulfillment in any meaningful way. And that's why he's credited as being the father of faith because he believed even though he had not received all the things that had been promised to him in his lifetime. But the most important promise of all that God makes with him is the one on which the story of redemption pivots and that is this, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God decides to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham. 
Remember, in the book of Genesis, in the first 11 chapters, it's just all, pretty much all bad news as far as from the human perspective. There's violence, there's sin, there's corruption, there's the flood, there's the power of Babel, which, which God has to strike down. I mean, it's just, it's just all bad. But God speaks a word of blessing even there. He says, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. And that's the gospel. Blessing will come through God. Not because we are able to build this tower that reaches up to heaven and make our names great. Not because we think we can be like God through disobedience, through disobedience of, of eating the forbidden fruit. God says, I will bless you. I will bless you. It's entirely a gift and by grace. And just as God saved all of creation through the obedience of Noah, of one man, so now God is going to bless all the families of the earth through the faithfulness of Abraham. The Apostle Paul says that this is the way that promise of blessing gets fulfilled. In Galatians 3, he writes, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, and this is the gospel. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the nations, all the peoples. Now, I have to remind you that blessing does not mean material blessings like long life or victory over your enemies or many children, although it can include those things. Those certainly are blessings. Those are tangible ways in which God might bless. But there is something far more fundamental about what it means to be blessed by God. Recently in, a, in an FG discussion about the word bless, I was sharing how that in the last of the songs of ascent, the word bless gets repeated. And I shared how that there are several different words for bless in the Bible, but that the one that is used in Psalm 134 is barak. And Barak is the word for knee in Hebrew. And so to bless God is to knee, or that is to kneel or to bow down. In other words, the way humans bless God is through worship. We bless God when we bend the knee, we bow, and we worship and praise God. That is how we bless God. What's interesting about Psalm 134 is that the same word is used to describe God blessing us. And I find that a little odd because, you know, how, how does God bend his metaphorical knees to bless us? What, what does that mean? Well, in the discussion, it came up, somebody said, someone suggested that the way God blesses us is that God also kneels or stoops. God bends down toward us. In other words, God is next to us and God incredibly humbles himself to our level. Someone said it's kind of like when an adult, you know, kind of bends down to get at eye level with a child. That's what God is doing. When God blesses us, God again kind of 
bends God's knees to get to our eye level to speak with us. That is how God blesses us. In the simplest way of putting this, the way God blesses us is to be with us, to be next to us. God's presence is the blessing. That is how God primarily blesses us. And we get a, a very real and tangible way of this in the incarnation when Jesus literally came to be with us eye to eye. That's why every Sunday morning when I say the Lord be with you and you respond back, the Lord bless you, it's the same thing, right? When I say the Lord bless you, I mean the Lord be with you. And when you say the Lord be with well, I guess the other way, right? To bless you, to be with it's the same thing. We're asking for the same blessing. That's the promise God made to Abraham. And it will be ultimately and fully fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that promise continues, right? That though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he will be with us. Even to the end of the age, I am with you. So that's what we ought to be asking for when we ask for blessings. When we ask God to bless others, in addition to whatever else they may need, and they need those things, whether it's food or water, whether it's healing or forgiveness, all legitimate concerns to be prayed for and needed, those are good blessings. But we want to ask more fundamentally that God will be with them and they can experience God's presence. That's the main thing. Every other blessing is ultimately secondary because every other blessing that we ask for and even receive, whether success or riches or health, will ultimately all fade away. But God's presence, that's everlasting. That's our hope. That's our only hope. And that's God's promise to us. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for the story of Abraham and the way that you called him. That you called him to follow you. To trust you. To be faithful wherever we are and worship. So God, help us to desire your presence, your blessing. And as you are with us, as you have promised to bless all the families of the earth, help us to make your presence real in the lives of others. We ask and pray in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.